Hi, friends. This is Elise, the Managing Director of Pantsuit Politics. Three years ago, we put together a deep dive into the events of September 11th, 2001. As we mark 20 years since that tragic day, it felt right to us to revisit that series. All five of those episodes are linked in the show notes, but what you'll hear today are the first and last parts of that series. First, a step-by-step recounting of the day itself, followed by Sarah and Beth's 2018 visit to and reflections on the memorial at Ground Zero in New York City. We hope a return to these episodes will be a meaningful part of your own processing this anniversary. We also know that this topic still carries a lot of pain for many people, especially in the middle of an already difficult year. So please be gentle with yourself as you listen and reflect on the events of that day. We'll be back with our regular content next week. Thanks, as always, for listening. In 2001, the World Trade Center complex consisted of seven buildings, which included the Twin Towers. When those Twin Towers were built in 1973, they were, at the time, the tallest buildings in the world. Six of the seven buildings in the complex were connected by an underground shopping mall. There was over 13 million square feet of office space in the complex. And the World Trade Center had initially been run by New York's Port Authority. It was privatized in 1998. I thought that the National Geographic's description written on September 13th, 2011, so two days after 9-11, was a good way to talk about perhaps why the World Trade Centers were targeted by al-Qaeda. The sophisticated structure of the slender, crystalline twin towers made them especially inviting symbols of America's achievement. Glass and steel pillars reaching into the clouds, their ethereal surfaces reflecting the changing moods of New York City. The World Trade Center represented the elite and the powerful. Its tenants were household names. It was the financial hub of the country and even, some would argue, the world. To America's enemies, the World Trade Center can be seen to represent America's pervasive cultural and economic economic imperialism. So I want to spend just a few seconds talking about the construction of the World Trade Center, which was very different than the way skyscrapers had been built in the past, which was with, usually they were built with a skeleton of interior supporting columns that support the structure. But the Twin Towers were really radically different in that it was the exterior wall that's used as the load-bearing wall, and the interior columns were located in the core, which contained the elevator. That's going to become really important. And that was made for a lot of different reasons, um, including cost savings and to expand the amount of real estate available for rent. So that was a decision that was made that when it, when it was built in the 70s that I think will become very important as we look at the events on 9-11. So we're going to try to go through the timeline of what happened on 9-11. It can get confusing. There were four flights and 19 total terrorists involved in hijacking those flights. And we have each taken responsibility for two of the four flights. So we'll go back and forth a little bit. Even if you know this story, I hope you'll stick with us because as we revisited it, there are so many things that I learned Mm -hmm. that I had never known before. As much as this has been covered, as many retrospectives as I've seen, there's so many pieces that were new to me as we did the research for this episode. And I hope that's the case for you too. 
So one of the first things that um, I didn't know is that two of the main hijackers aboard American Airlines Flight 11 actually flew from Maine on a commuter flight from Maine at 545 that morning on September 11th. They boarded the commuter flight from Maine, and then they flew to Boston's Logan International Airport. They boarded American Airlines Flight 11, which was a Boeing 767. So this is a really big plane, big enough that it has the two aisles down the center. But it was not very full. There were only 92 people aboard the plane. Now, these are big planes, like I said, and they carry a lot of jet fuel. So this Flight 11 was carrying 9,717 gallons of jet fuel. Now, this is 14,000 gallons under its capacity. So it was carrying a lot of jet fuel because it was flying to Los Angeles, but not its max capacity and was also not fully seated. So it was not to its full capacity of seating as, as well. So the flight takes off at 7.59 a.m. At 8.13 a.m., it was the last direction given by air control that the pilot responded to. So they were told, I, th- I believe, to turn, and they did. And then after that, they no longer responded to air control. Now, from the phone calls from the planes, the investigators have been able to piece together a little bit of what happened in the first moments when the hijackers took over the flights. And I'm going to talk a little bit more in detail about the flight attendants in a minute. But there was recordings of the flight attendant saying, we can't breathe They believe that um, some of the hijackers used mace, in particular because one of the hijackers' um, luggage was never put on the plane at Logan, and that later was found to have contained some mace in it. We all know, probably at this point, that they also had box cutters and attacked several of the passengers. And it seems that they also, from the reports of several of the passengers and flight attendants, um, had sort of fake bombs strapped to their chest in order to intimidate the passengers and scare them. The plane, this first flight, American Airlines Flight 11, contained a passenger who they believe was the first person killed on 9-11. His name was Daniel Lewin. He had served in the Israeli Army. He was only 30 years old, and he had actually invented an algorithm for optimizing Internet traffic. And it seems as if he tried to protect the cockpit. He was seated in first class. So he exhibited a large amount of bravery, I think, in that scenario. And it's so sad to think about a young man who held such promise being killed as So many were that day. So he seems to have tried to prevent them taking the cockpit. At 8.14 a.m. is when United Airlines Flight 175, another Boeing 767 with 65 people aboard, also takes off from Boston, headed to Los Angeles. It is also not fully seated. It's about 56 people. And there's also 9,000 gallons of jet fuel on that plane as well. At 8.19 a.m., so this is about five minutes after Flight 175 takes set, flight attendants aboard Flight 11 alert ground personnel that the planes have been hijacked. And I want to take a moment to really talk about these two flight attendants. In a minute, we're going to share some of the audio of one of these calls from Betty Ong and from Madeline Amy Sweeney, who had filled in from another flight attendant who was ill that day. These women were so calm and so collected and exhibited such bravery in calling ground control, giving them specific details about what had happened, about where the descriptions of the attackers, about where they were seated. Their ability to remain calm was instrumental in investigators being able to put together later what happened aboard those flights and who was responsible for these attacks. So I want to share just a little bit of Betty Ong's call to flight control. Number three in the back, um, the cockpit's not answering. Somebody's stabbed in business class. And um, I think there's mates that we can't breathe. I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. Which flight do you want? 
Flight attendants had been trained to communicate only with the cockpit mm-hmm. in, in hijacking scenarios. And without that being an option, these two flight attendants just had to improvise. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they did that so skillfully and so calmly is just remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There was some interesting writing. I read that there was a lot of sort of gendered reporting after 9-11 um, and that we leaned toward narratives that supported a lot of heroism that we sort of already had stories around. Not that one's better or one's less, but that the 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 stories of these flight attendants sort of got missed. And so I really wanted to take a moment and highlight their bravery for sure. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. At 8.20, American Airlines Flight 77 took off from Dulles International Airport outside of Washington, D.C. 
The Boeing 757 was headed to Los Angeles like the other two flights that Sarah just talked about with 64 people on board, two pilots, four flight attendants, 58 passengers, including three elementary school children selected for a trip hosted by National Geographic. All five of these hijackers were flagged by security for extra scrutiny for one reason or another, including that one of them didn't have a photo ID and agents found them to be suspicious. The only consequence of being flagged for this extra scrutiny ended up being that their checked bags were held off the plane until it was confirmed that they had boarded. Three of the hijackers set off metal detectors and had extra screening before boarding the plane. The screeners didn't resolve what set off the alarms and allowed the hijackers to board the plane anyway. And this seems unthinkable today. And the reason that it seems unthinkable today is because we have all been flying in recent mm-hmm. years in a post 9-11 world. Yep. And I think this is one moment to kind of flag as a way in which our our everyday lives substantially changed after 9-11. When you read about the way security was conducted then, it's just unimaginable compared to what we do now. The five hijackers boarded the plane at 7.50 a.m., two of them sat in coach and three in first class. The plane was scheduled to depart at 8.10. It took off at 8.20 and reached its cruising altitude at 8.46. Okay, so this plane takes off at 8.20. At 8.24, the lead hijacker on Flight 11 makes the first of two accidental transmissions. Now, I also read that there is some theory that the, the pilot before, I'm assuming they either attacked him or killed him, pressed a button so that the transmissions would go to ground control before he was forced from the cockpit. Or there's some understanding that he, that maybe he was trying to communicate to the plane's cabin. But either way, they made the first of two accidental transmissions. Now, what is insane to me that I learned about at this time is that the pilot of Flight 175 heard these accidental transmissions um, and I think tried to communicate to air control that there was a plane being hijacked minutes before his own plane was hijacked. 837, Boston Air Traffic Control, based on the calls from the flight attendants, alerts the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, Northeast Air Defense Sector, so that's just the sector that defends the Northeast, about the suspected hijacking of Flight 11. In response, Needs scrambles two fighter planes located at Cape Cod's Otis Air National Guard Base to locate and tail Flight 11. They are not yet in the air when Flight 11 crashes into North Tower. And there is some really intense audio of um, people thinking, is this a test? No, it's not a test. This is not a drill. This is real. And the problem was that once they said tail Flight 11, the hijackers had turned off the transponder. And that was a really easy thing to do. And it's still, assuming I'm assuming, an easy thing to do from a cockpit because they have to turn them off when they're landed or else... You know, they wouldn't, it would be a chaos of transponding with all the planes landed at especially big airports. So he turned off the transponder so they couldn't find, they couldn't tell the fighter planes where to go to tail Flight 11. And they're also, as you go through all of the agency's responses to this, the idea of a commercial flight mm-hmm. being weaponized in this way was just new. They just mm-hmm. weren't prepared for this at all. So a few minutes after that alert to NORAD, United Airlines Flight 93, a Boeing 757 with 44 people, including the hijackers on board, took off from Newark International Airport in New Jersey en route to San Francisco. This flight was supposed to have departed at 8 o'clock, about the same time as the other three planes. 
it had 48,700 pounds of fuel on board, so much more jet fuel than the other three planes. I think it's I think it's so important to emphasize that because this plane being late, being the one carrying the most jet fuel, and being the one, in theory, headed for Washington, D.C., um, had things played out differently, the events of 9-11, it would have been, I think, almost incomprehensibly more tragic. Four hijackers boarded this flight. There was likely supposed to be a fifth hijacker. The three other planes had teams of five. But one individual in August had been prevented from immigrating to the United States by an agent in Florida who the 9-11 Commission believes was supposed to be the fifth team member for this flight. So only four hijackers on this plane. One of them had been selected for extra scrutiny by the computerized system that flagged passengers at the time. The security area lacked closed-circuit television monitoring, so we don't know exactly what happened in their screening process, and no one who was interviewed remembered anything suspicious. So at this time, each individual airline was responsible for security screening. And United had contracted that out, and I'm sure lots of other airlines did as well. And so there were vastly different procedures in place and monitoring of those procedures. The four hijackers all sat in first class, one right by the cockpit, two together in row three and one in row six. The flight didn't actually depart until 8.42, so 42 minutes late. Two pilots, five flight attendants, and 37 passengers were on this plane. That was well below the normal passenger count for a flight like this at the time. There has not been any evidence that the hijackers deliberately sought out smaller flights or bought extra seats to facilitate their plans. And Sarah and I were talking before, you can imagine so many different scenarios at every turn as you examine these facts. So think as we talk about United Flight 93 about what the ramifications could have been if the flight had been full. When the plane took off, the crew was unaware that American 11 had been hijacked. Just before 825, Boston Center realized that a hijacker on American 11 had used the phrase, quote, we have some planes. But no one at the FAA or the airlines had ever dealt with multiple hijackings, and people were just struggling to get their heads around what was happening. It doesn't seem to have immediately occurred to anyone that they needed to alert other planes in the air of what was going on. Mm. So at 8.46 a.m., the hijackers aboard American Airlines Flight 11 crashed the plane into floors 93 through 99 of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. They killed everyone on board, including several children, and hundreds inside the building. Now, this is where the, the construction of the World Trade Center is important. Because the columns were located at the interior of the building and not the exterior as they used to be with um, other skyscraper construction. It severs all three emergency stairways. It also severs the water line so that none of the sprinklers are putting out water to help stop the fire. And I think that's really important. So anybody above the 99th floor on the North Tower had no way of getting down because those elevators and stairwells were severed by the plane itself. After the plane crashes in to the North Tower, 
minutes, within seconds. I mean, the listing on the time, most timelines is 847, so just a minute later. NYPD and FDNY forces dispatch units to the World Trade Center with the Port Authority Police Department officers on site, and they begin the immediate evacuation of the North Tower. At 8.50, the White House Chief of Staff, Andrew Card, alerted President George W. Bush that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. The president was visiting an elementary school in Sarasota, Florida at the time. He elected to remain in the classroom to keep reading until he knew more. And he wanted, according to everyone who was interviewed at the time, to really project an image of calm and strength. Which remember, they didn't know what had happened yet. At first, one plane in the World Trade Center, it seemed like it could have been an accident. They just didn't know yet what was happening. So when the plane hit the North Tower with the 9,000 pounds of jet fuel... And because of the construction of the tower, those inner stairwells and elevator shafts basically acted as a chimney and shot fire up and down. The heat itself from the flight was traveled much faster than the flames themselves. So the upper floors became almost unbearably hot immediately. And just let me take us a, a time out for a, a second to just say that my one small note on the conspiracy theories If a person spouting 9-11 conspiracy theories cannot explain to you the difference between heat and temperature, tell them to shut up. Time back in. That's my time. Only time out for the conspiracy theories. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the heat because I think it's very important in this timeline to talk about um, victims of 9-11 that are difficult to think about, but who I think that we have not done a good job as a society giving them the full attention and the full um, telling their stories in a way that they deserve. So at 8.51 a.m., the first jumper is recorded jumping from the 93rd floor of the first tower. Again, because the heat was so intense, many people jumped from windows surrounding the impact. Now, there are reports from the South Tower of people who could see this happening. And many people report that people were dazed and confused, um, trying to exit, found fresh air, and just walked toward it, not realizing what they were doing. But there were also people who stepped to the windows and seemingly jumped of of a, I don't want to use the word choice. It wasn't a choice. But I think that because it's such a difficult thing to talk about, someone being in an impossible position and making a decision that maybe some of us don't understand we sort of have just avoided talking about these people. But over 200 people are estimated to have jumped from the World Trade Center at that time. There seems to be, there was no effort on the on the part of our government to determine who they were. Several victims, have, families have gone out of their way to determine, um, or who sort of had an instinct that some of the people in the photos were their loved ones. And some of them, you know, report feeling like they finally got closure, they understood, they knew what happened to their loved one. Um, but then some people just don't want to talk about it, don't want to ha- don't want to don't want to face um, sort of any discussion that this is maybe a choice their loved one again don't want to use the word choice. They don't want to have any discussion of the way their loved one died, and you know it's it's handled um, in an alcove set off in the in the nine eleven memorial. There's been a lot of writing and documentaries about some of the photos, especially um, the the famous photo of the falling man. But I just it was really important to me to take a moment and talk about the impossible situation that these people found themselves in and not just um, gloss over it because it's really, really difficult to think or talk about. I think that is a theme of this entire day. 
right? Mm-hmm. People just in impossible, unimaginable situations, subject to their instincts, mm-hmm. right? And um, and to just doing the best that they could under the circumstances. Also at 8.51, the last normal radio communication from American Flight 77, the flight that departed from Washington Dulles, was recorded. The hijacking of that flight began between 8.51 and 8.54. The hijackers used knives to move all the passengers to the back of the plane. One passenger reported that the hijackers had box cutters as well. A hijacker assumed control of the plane and turned it south. He turned off the transponder, as Sarah talked about a minute ago, so that radar contact with the plane was lost. At 9 o'clock, an American Airlines executive learned that Flight 77 wasn't communicating, so that happened pretty quickly. He ordered all American Airlines planes in the Northeast that weren't currently in the air to stay on the ground. After the second tower was hit in New York, American Airlines executives thought that it must have been Flight 77. And when they learned that United was also missing a plane, that's when they ordered a ground stop of all their planes nationwide. At this time, according to the 9-11 Commission report, at least two passengers on Flight 77 called family members from the plane. Renee May called her mother and told her that the plane had been hijacked. She asked her mother to alert American Airlines, and her mother did that right away. Wow. Another passenger, Barbara Olson, called her husband Ted Olson. Ted Olson at the time was the Solicitor General of the United States. The call was cut off about a minute into the conversation, at which time Ted unsuccessfully tried to reach John Ashcroft, the Attorney General. Barbara called back and shared more details. She asked Ted for advice on what she should tell the pilots and the crew to do. And at that time, Ted told Barbara about the World Trade Center crashes. Barbara did not panic, and she did not seem aware that a crash was imminent. She was trying to look out the window to tell Ted where they were. She told him that they were flying over some houses, and the call was cut off. At 8.55 a.m., there was an announcement to the South Tower of the World Trade Center, and everyone was told to stay in their offices and to stay put and not evacuate. I know that this is very difficult to hear or think about, but there were thousands of people in these towers. And I think that the thinking was if they flood the streets, it's going to make any sort of evacuation or emergency vehicle movement around the towers any more difficult. Now, this didn't direction to stay put didn't last very long. So at nine o'clock, Along with the fl- the calls coming from Flight 77, Flight 175 has also att- several passengers and flight attendants on that plane are making calls as well and reporting very similar things: um, box cutters, hijacking, the transponders has turned. It's a it's a similar. They were f- clearly following a similar plan. So at 9.02, after the initial instruction of the for the people in the South Tower to stay put, the Port Authority officially broadcast orders to evacuate both towers via the public address system. An estimated 10,000 to 14,000 people are already in the process of evacuating when, at 9.03 a.m., hijackers crash United Airlines Flight 175 into, flower, into floors 75 through 85 of the World Trade Center South Tower killing everyone on board and hundreds inside the building. This is only 17 minutes after the first impact, which is an incredibly short amount of time. Although I will say at this point, I highly recommend um, everyone watching 102 Minutes That Changed America. It's a hun- it's a history channel documentary, and it is just found footage from New Yorkers um, and people are in the surrounding area of that day. And it's, 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 
the 102 minutes. So it's just, it's um, editing of the audio and the video from that time. And it's really um, impactful to see it unfold in real time and to see how people were putting together what's happening. There is an incredibly um, horrific moment when there are some students at NYU filming from their dorm room and they film as this second flight crashes into the South Tower and just their their terror, their terror at feeling like we're under attack. It, it, you know, we are marching through this knowing what we know now. But like Beth said, it wasn't just government officials that couldn't comprehend, even the what people who knew that it was a hijacking from the beginning um, couldn't comprehend what was happening. People on the ground, it was so many people thought that the first plane, it was an accident and they had just accidentally flown into a tower that had happened early in the 20th century with people flying into skyscrapers. It's interesting, and we'll talk about this in the events leading up to 9-11, that the 1993 World Trade Center bombing had more of an impact, I think, on New Yorkers than it did on the rest of America because there were several people in the found footage who say, oh, they came back. This is, remember, they tried 1993. They kind of instantly thought that this was terrorism. But the second plane hitting the South Tower is when you feel the energy in this footage and in the audio and people's terror really shift dramatically. And that's when you start to see the government understanding what's happening as well. Because at 9.08, the FAA banned takeoffs of flights going into New York City or through the airspace around the city. At 9.21, the Port Authority closed all bridges and tunnels in the New York City area. At 9.24, the FAA notified needs of the suspected hijacking of Flight 77 because of the calls that were coming from passengers on that plane. And at 9.31, President Bush spoke from Florida and called the events an apparent terrorist attack on the country. So back on board Flight 77. At 9.29, the autopilot on that flight was disengaged. At 9.32, controllers at Dulles observed something on the radar tracking east at a high rate of speed. At 9.34, Ronald Reagan Airport advised the Secret Service that an unknown plane was heading toward the White House. The plane made a 330-degree turn and descended rapidly through 2,200 feet pointed toward the Pentagon. The pilot advanced the throttles to maximum power and dove into the Pentagon at 9.37 a.m. The plane was traveling at about 530 miles per hour. Everyone on board and 125 civilians and military personnel at the Pentagon were killed. Now, this was a part of the building, correct me if I'm wrong, that was sort of under construction. So it was actually not as fully staffed as other parts of the building. So at 9.42 a.m., for the first time in American history, the FAA grounds all flights over or bound for the continental United States. Some 3,300 commercial flights and 1,200 private planes are guided to airports in Canada, United States, over the next two and a half hours. I have several friends that were in flights or grounded in several parts across the world. And um, I think that the impact of people, of this decision was really um, far-reaching and and brought home the seriousness of the events in a real way for people all over the world. It's also a place to say as much as you can fault the FAA and you can for many things that happened, it is amazing that all these planes landed safely. Mm-hmm. It is amazing. When you think about you're trying to make these decisions as you come to understand that your planes have been hijacked in a way that you've never anticipated or trained for. And you've got all the other, all these other planes in the air. 
And I'll talk more in a second about how some of the folks who were starting to understand what was happening started identifying other planes that would have been good candidates for hijacking. And so they're worried about those planes. But you have all these planes in the air, and then you've got to get them all down safely. And that happened professionally in an orderly way without a whole lot of um, wreckage or chaos or mm-hmm. problems. And that's incredible. And a whole lot of people had to do an excellent job in unprecedented circumstances making that happen. Mm-hmm. The White House at 945 and the U.S. Capitol building were evacuated, along with quite a few other high-profile buildings, landmarks, and public spaces. There were myriad Conference calls being rapidly put together, you know, as they're trying to secure everyone, they're also trying to connect the military with the FAA, with the airlines. You can imagine the scramble bureaucratically that no one was prepared for trying to get together. People were very frustrated about who was on certain calls and who wasn't on the calls. They were frustrated because they were operating on such limited information. And at the same time, the president is down in Florida. Dick Cheney is being evacuated as the vice president. They're trying to keep the president and the vice president in touch with one another. There's a whole section of the 9-11 Commission report devoted to the communications between the president and the vice president and the orders that were given and the authority that was granted at particular times. It was it was a really chaotic period. I want to take um, a minute while we're talking about evacuations, um, which were very chaotic, to talk about one story that's really stuck with me. This is the story of Rick Rescorla, who is known as the man who saw it coming. He was the director of security for Morgan Stanley. He, after the 1993 attack, felt very strongly that at the time it was the firm was known as Dean Witter, that they should move out of the towers Um, They basically neglected his advice, but he stayed as a security consultant, and he really felt like that the tenants of now Morgan Stanley couldn't depend on the first responders and that that they needed to have take the security of their firm into their own hands. And so he had all the he would do all these security drills with people. And the day of the attack, all that training and all of his insistence on looking at the the risk involved after 1993 and all these drills really paid off. And then during the evacuation, he is credited with saving over 2,000 people, leading over 2,000 people in the evacuation out of the tower. And um, he was last seen going back up looking for any stragglers, and he was killed in the attack. Something that I read about him said you should learn his story and have patience with that one person in your office who's obsessed with disaster yep. scenarios, mm-hmm. which really hit home with me. Yeah. I thought that that was um, – speaking of the prophets, like we were talking about, the people that are like, no, we have, to, we have to pay attention to this, that he tried to get them to move to New Jersey and all these things. I think it was such a powerful story that I've thought a lot about during our research. Okay. So at 9.59 a.m., the South Tower of the World Trade Center collapses in just 10 seconds after burning for 66 minutes, killing all 800 people inside. The South Tower actually was, of course, the second tower hit. But because it was hit lower in the structure, it was believed to have affected the core structure, burned hotter and burned in the middle. And so the collapse, that's why it collapsed before the North Tower So between the first crash and the second crash and the third crash, 
you have all of these agencies trying to figure out what to do. At 9.07 a.m., FAA controllers at Boston Center requested that Herndon Command Center tell planes in the air to increase their cockpit security. Hmm. But there's no evidence that Herndon did that. Hmm. Boston Center started worrying that a particular Delta transcontinental flight could be in danger. That flight had not been hijacked. But based on what they saw from the first two flights, they were concerned that that one might be as well. FAA air traffic controllers later testified to the 9-11 Commission that air carriers, not the FAA, were responsible for notifying planes of security problems. They said it wasn't the FAA's place to order the airlines what to tell their pilots. Mm. American Airlines seems not to have sent any cockpit warnings. United didn't share that information with pilots in the air until 9-19 when a dispatcher on his own took the initiative to transmit warnings to his 16 flights that he was responsible for. Good that for man's that name was Ed Ballinger. And he was giving the message to all 16 of his flights. Flight 93 was one of his flights. At 9-24, he told the pilots of Flight 93, to take extra care in the cockpit because of these hijackings. Two minutes later, the pilot asked Ed to confirm that message and sounded a little bit confused. They had been in the air for 46 minutes. They were having a normal flight so far. And then two minutes later, the hijackers attacked that plane. The plane dropped 700 feet very rapidly over eastern Ohio. The pilot issued a mayday 11 seconds into the descent, and his transmission picked up sounds of a physical struggle in the cockpit. 35 seconds later, there was another radio transmission in which you can hear the captain or the first officer shouting, hey, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. At 9.32, a hijacker announced to the passengers on that flight, ladies and gentlemen, hear the captain. Please sit down. Keep remaining sitting. We have a bomb on board, so sit. The flight data recorder also recovered indicates that the hijacking pilot then instructed the plane's autopilot to turn the aircraft around and head east. The voice recorder indicates that a flight attendant was being held captive in the cockpit. She struggled with one of the hijackers who killed or otherwise silenced her at that point. So the passengers on Flight 93 start calling friends and family, and these calls were really important because by now people on the ground knew about the World Trade Centers. And so they are communicating to the people on this plane what's happened elsewhere. The hijackers of this plane tried to make a second announcement telling the passengers that there was a bomb on board and that the plane was going back to the airport, but the hijacker broadcast his message to Cleveland's air traffic control instead of to the passengers. And the 9-11 Commission report says that this probably was because this particular hijacker had never flown a commercial airliner and just didn't know how to work the radio and the intercom. So it was probably just a mistake that he broadcast in the wrong way. Passengers making calls aboard Flight 93 told friends that the hijackers had knives, that they were wearing red bandanas, and had forced them all to the back of the plane, just like in the other scenarios. One passenger had been stabbed, and they saw two people lying on the floor of the cabin, which possibly were the captain and the first officer. One caller on this plane thought that the hijackers might have a gun, but no one else corroborated that, and there has never been any evidence to indicate that guns were on board. 
It also sounds to investigators like the bomb threats on all four flights were fake because no trace of explosives were found at the crash sites. So they think that they just mentioned bombs to try to intimidate passengers and keep them from realizing what was really happening. So as the passengers on Flight 93 are realizing what's happened elsewhere, they start sharing information from their calls with each other and talking about an attempt to revolt against the hijackers. One person said that the passengers voted on whether to rush the terrorist and retake the plane. And at 9.57, that's what they did. One caller ended her message by saying, everyone's running up to first class. I've got to go. Bye. And I don't know why that detail struck me so hard, but it really did. The passengers mounted a sustained assault on the terrorists. The pilot tried to knock them down by turning the plane sharply left to right several times and pitching the nose of the plane up and down. And in recordings, you can hear loud thumps and crashes and shouts and breaking glass, but the passengers kept at it. I just wanted to read directly from the 9-11 Commission report about what happened next. At 10 o'clock and 26 seconds, a passenger in the background said, In the cockpit, if we don't, we'll die. 16 seconds later, a passenger yelled, Roll it. Jarrah, who was the pilot, stopped the violent maneuvers at about 10 o'clock and one minute and said, Allah is the greatest. Allah is the greatest. He then asked another hijacker in the cockpit, Is that it? I mean, shall we put it down? To which the other replied, yes, put it in it and pull it down. The passengers continued their assault, and at 10.02 and 23 seconds, a hijacker said, pull it down, pull it down. The hijackers remained at the controls, but must have judged that the passengers were only seconds from overcoming them. The airplane headed down. The control wheel was turned hard to the right. The airplane rolled onto its back, and one of the hijackers began shouting, Allah is the greatest, Allah is the greatest. With the sounds of the passenger counterattack continuing, the aircraft plowed into an empty field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania at 580 miles per hour, about 20 minutes flying time from Washington, D.C. Their objective was to crash the airliner into symbols of the American Republic, the Capitol, or the White House. They were defeated by the alerted, unarmed passengers of United 93. I just, I can't stop thinking about how different things would have been had that flight not been delayed and had those passengers not done what they did. You know, a theme for me as I have been reading all about what happened that day was thinking about how difficult it is to find the right balance between chain of command and decentralized decision-making. Because none of this had been anticipated, really the people who were able to effectuate the most change that day were disconnected from any authority. You know, they just, the flight attendants who in the moment decided to make calls and the passengers on this plane who in the moment band together to rush the cockpit. And elsewhere, decisions were stuck, running from decision maker to decision maker, um, trying to just understand what happened and put the right teams and the right responses together. And we need a balance of those things. Mm-hmm. But that's something that I've thought a lot about. What is the appropriate balance between structures and decentralization of decisions based on just what is in front of you in these unanticipated circumstances? So at 10.02, this plane crashes. 20 minutes later, 
approximately at 10.28 a.m., the World Trade Center's North Tower collapses. It's 102 minutes after being struck by Flight 11, killing 1,600 people inside. At 11.02 a.m., Mayor Rudy Giuliani calls for the evacuation of Lower Manhattan south of Canal Street, including more than one million residents, workers, and tourists as efforts continue through the aftermath to search for the survivors at the World Trade Center site. I got to tell you, in the 102 Minutes documentary, I, I don't think I fully comprehended what the collapse of the buildings were like. Now, because of we talked about the structure of the World Trade Center complex, there was um, basically a pit, and the buildings went into the pit. Um, but this mushroom cloud, um, you know, in some of the footage, it seems like the people are – it sounds like the camera is underwater. It is just all-consuming – um, it looks like the apocalypse, just a total war zone. You know, the the heat from these buildings and their collapse burned out cars parked around the World Trade Center. So you see these burned out shells of vehicles and people, I mean, it, people are running for their lives from this cloud. They don't know what's coming behind them. Um, it's just, it's so hard to watch and to comprehend the fear that people must have felt as this cloud just rolls through lower Manhattan. And then as once this evacuation is called, I mean, then you just, you don't just have the mushroom cloud rolling. You just have a river of people exiting the Island, walking across bridges, getting on boats, um, helping each other where they can. It's, it's just, it's unbelievable. At 12.30, there were 13 first responders and one citizen rescued from the North Tower stairwell B, which is really unbelievable to think about that these people survived, you know, a 100-plus story building falling on top of them and lived to tell the tale. At 1 o'clock, President Bush at an Air Force base in Louisiana announced that the U.S. military forces would be on high alert worldwide. At 2.51 p.m., the U.S. Navy dispatched missile destroyers to New York and Washington, D.C. 5.20 p.m., the 47-story 7 World Trade Center collapses after burning for hours. The building had been evacuated. There are no casualty, though the collapse forces rescue workers to flee for their lives once again. President Bush returned to the White House at 6.58 p.m. after stops at military bases in Louisiana and Nebraska At 8.30, he addressed the nation, calling the attacks evil, despicable acts of terror and declaring that America, its friends and allies would stand together to win the war against terrorism. And that's pretty significant because up until this point, President Bush had not intended to be a foreign policy president. This Mm -hmm. was not what he ran to do. And I think that the image we have of George W. Bush today is so different than the image we might have had of him had these attacks not happened. And that's not a positive or a negative comment. It's just an observation. And you can tell, I think, in reading some of what happened this day and some of his communications with Dick Cheney that early on he was really struggling with taking on the commander-in-chief role under these circumstances. I think we were all struggling under these circumstances. You know, as we stated at the start of this show and this series, it's really important for us to just spend some time 
and to bear witness to the horrific events of that day. So we have walked you through a timeline, but I highly encourage everyone to spend some time looking at some of the really, really great resources online. The 9-11 Memorial has a really great timeline that we'll link to. We're going to put together a blog post with all our resources that we've used in doing our research. Um, Beth has been reading the 9-11 Commission reports. The There are, you know, stories of the victims and people whose lives were lost that day. I just think that it's a really powerful and important exercise as American citizens to spend some time grieving and thinking through the tragic events of that day. And, you know, the the timeline we put together today is just the beginning. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We started our tour of the World Trade Center complex at Trinity Church St. Paul's Chapel. And if you don't know anything about the history of St. Paul's, it's well worth your time to look into. It's one of the only buildings in the United States that's still standing where all of the founding fathers met at one point. And it's a really remarkable landmark now because despite its very close proximity to the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, it only had a window broken on 9-11. The destruction of those towers destroyed lots of buildings mm-hmm. around them. There was huge damage. Most of them had to be completely demolished and rebuilt. And a large tree fell in front of St. Paul's, creating this canopy over the building. And so only one window was broken, and it became a base out of which first responders were able to work. They slept there, they showered there, they took their meals there. And it was a really powerful way to kind of walk into this experience. They even have one of the pews from the church inside the museum itself. And as we walked through the tour, I was so struck, particularly at the beginning, by our tour guide, John, talking. You can tell he spent so much time reflecting on how we experienced that day, how so many people reported that it was a small passenger plane at first. And and he was like, there's no way that that's what it looked like, that the explosion looked like that. But when our brains can't comprehend something, it's like, we'll find something that makes sense and stick to that. And just hearing him talk through his own personal, like he's he spent so much time reflecting on his experiences, both through the lens of memory and through the lens of moving forward and living your life afterwards. He, he put this great sort of framework about everything we walked through. This is what it was like then. This is how we've thought through it since. This is how we're reaffirming life and moving forward. And the church itself, to have been such a historical landmark in the founding of our country, to be protected by a life-giving thing like a tree, is so intense to sort of to start this experience of this area. And honestly, the impact of that day on the surrounding buildings was not something I understood fully until we started doing our research. But I mean, you have you have a fire truck within the museum that the first the first part of the fire truck is just you can't even recognize it as like with wheels and a steering wheel. It's just completely mangled and melted because of the heat and the intensity and the debris just destroyed. It was like a war zone, destroyed everything in its wake. So to see this church protected and to to start to experience the area through the lens of that historical framework and moving forward was really powerful. It was also powerful to learn about a small version. Uh, it's a replica of the Liberty Bell that mm. was brought over from the UK. And what happened around the church, it, it really became a place for the world to express its 
love and support and grief with New York. And part of that is this bell. And so now whenever there is um, a bombing somewhere in Europe, it's it's just a, it continues to be a place where New Yorkers connect with the rest of the world through difficult things. And I think the symbolism of that is really powerful, too. So then we walked around the area itself and sort of tried to try to orient ourselves in the space. What was there on that day and what is there now? One of the most amazing things is there was a sculpture in the plaza of the World Trade Center. It's a big, it's sort of like a sphere. It's black and it has brass. And as they started to clear the rubble over time, they discovered the sculpture. And instead of fixing it, it now stands sort of in its its new form, which I think is beautiful in its own way. Um, in this Liberty Park area that is sort of adjacent to the memorial site. So you can see, and I remember seeing the sculpture when I went to the World Trade Center the first time. So it's it's so powerful to see it back there um, in its sort of new shape, taking on all the the heat and the and the the way it's been sort of mangled, but still it's still beautiful. It's still beautiful. And really, I think the way that they set up the entire memorial is an unbelievable tribute to the lives lost and to the bravery of first responders, because it is all about, as our tour guide kept saying, reaffirming life. So there are hundreds of white oak trees planted. And he talked about how those are trees that have a very long lifespan and and grow very, very tall. So 50, 60 years from now, it is going to be an amazing site of trees. There's also a tree called the survivor tree that actually grew in the original World Trade Center complex, somehow made it through 9-11. They found green leaves on it a month out from 9-11 and transported it to take care of it. It survived a lightning storm (laughs) uh, before they brought it back. This tree is just a resilient tree. It's very true. And it's not like it's not like it's an oak tree. It's like a it's like an ornamental pear. It's not a tree you necessarily associate with um, sort of a hardy breed of tree. But man, it survived and it's grown beautifully now at the site. And there are so many things where they're trying to be, you know, the trees are not just a memorial, they're they're a park. It's a place that will move forward and be a living, breathing space. And that was so true, you know, all across that area. I mean, they couldn't, they've built new office buildings. And he talked about how it used to be like 90% of the office buildings around the World Trade Center were the financial industry. Well, now it's new media, new media like Spotify's down there. Like the world has changed and they've adapted to those changes th- with the office buildings themselves. There's a beautiful building called the Oculus. And it sort of looks like big white eyelashes. I don't know how to describe it, but it's. Um, we'll put some photos in the show notes. It's a beautiful building and it's the transportation hub. And then there's also a mall down in there because there was a mall below the World Trade Center. And he talked about how within this building, there are glass panels at the top that can be opened. And on the anniversary every year, they open the windows and, you know, sort of bring in fresh air and let the air release because people died in that space. And in the way that they need to move forward, they also need to allow for this sort of breathing of fresh, fresh air, releasing and turning over every year because it's it's a very complicated space now. There are a lot of things in that space. There is death and memorial. There is life and 
business and shopping and transportation and people moving and living their everyday lives, all those things are present in this space. And I think that they've done a really good job of giving form to all those different functions within that space. Our guide talked about how the entire space is meant to draw people in and to constantly send a message that you cannot destroy mm-hmm. a space. You cannot remove life from a space. It will come back. And no matter what happens anywhere on earth, there will be people to come and reclaim that space and make it something good and beautiful. And And I think they've really done that. And so another way that they have commemorated the Twin Towers in the footprint of each of the towers is a large pool of water. And pool doesn't really do justice to what this is. There's water just running down the walls of these pools. And then in the center of each one is what looks like just a bottomless second pool almost where all the water, it it doesn't look like a drain or something. It looks like a second pool. And so all of this water running down the walls then runs into this second pool that that you can't see the end of, which is supposed to symbolize the endless grief associated with this event. But it's also water, and and water is life. And there is a sort of shelf all the way around the pool where names of the victims are engraved in a way where you can put flowers and flags and objects into these individuals' names. You can touch them. It is a very sensory-heavy experience. And then you can slide your hands beneath those shelves and actually touch the water, too. So after our tour, we entered the 9-11 Museum. And immediately, you you realize sort of the depth of the space. You go very sort of deep underground. There are soaring ceilings. A lot of times because they have to fit in massive structures that really give you the scale of the World Trade Center itself. In fact, as we were walking in, the first thing I was struck by was how they have to set up the World Trade Center. And here's my thoughts as I was sharing them with Beth as we were walking through the museum. As we're starting through the memorial, I'm realizing they have to spend so much time setting up the perspective of what the World Trade Centers were because for so many people, they'll never know. You know, as someone who was pretty much into adulthood on September 11th, like, I thought we would start with the attacks and what happened. And because I understand the scope of the buildings, I understood what they symbolized. I'd seen them before in my life. But there will be generations of people or so, so many people that just don't understand what the buildings were before they fell. And that kind of hit me in a big way as we're walking through the memorial. So you descend this staircase, and as you do, you walk alongside a piece of stairway that was removed from one of the towers. And seeing that, for me, just drew me right into the experience mm-hmm. of these buildings. There is also an unbelievably powerful art installation of watercolor panels in different blues, where different artists were invited to recall the color of the sky on the morning of September 11th. And in the midst of that, there is a quote from Virgil 
No day shall erase you from the memory of time forged out of pieces of iron from the building. So it's a really powerful way to begin the museum. And as you come in, you hear voices of people talking about their experiences of that day. My parents, I wanted to talk to the people that I loved most. So I started to call my friends and these days. But you can't get through all the sports of good people. The sensory experience of walking into the museum and hearing all those voices. In the museum itself, it felt like walking through the documentary I talked about a lot when we worked through the timeline, which is 102 Minutes That Changed America, which is just found footage that walks minute by minute through the September 11th attacks. They have the audio of the the commander asking for a roll call of the ladders and brigades present in the South Tower with him. They have that. That plays in one section of the museum. You, ha- you hear all these voices talking about throughout that you see the Today Show reporting. It's, it's very intense. It's, it's like walking through the day itself because there are so many audio and sensory experiences, and they've done such a good job in, in particular, in certain parts of making you really step into the moment of that day. So there is an alcove where they talk about people who fell out of the windows of the World Trade Centers because of the heat and the flames above the crash sites themselves. They made a choice that I thought was very profound in that there they show photos on the wall, but you have to look up. They push the photos way up the wall, and so you literally have to look up at these photos in in exact same way that the people on the ground that day had to look up and witness this. And they share two quotes. One woman saying, I I felt like I had to look away. It was the only respectful choice. And another woman saying, I felt like I had to watch. It was the only respectful choice. And I thought that was a really nuanced, profound way to say this was a very intense experience that everyone reacted to the same way. And that's okay. That's okay. I don't know if we did a good enough job after 9-11 of telling each other, like, we are all going to react to this differently, and that is okay. I mean, and I think that's even true of the experience of the museum and memorial itself. You're good. Everybody's going to have a different experience. A lot of um, people have asked me, oh, did you did you hear read some of the victims and the families and their responses to it? And I have, and I understand that some people— um, don't enjoy the museum and don't enjoy the memorial. And I think that's fine. And I think the difficulty of the people designing it is as important as the victims' families are. This museum has to stand decades, hundreds of years after anyone who was alive during that time will still be here, including the victims and their families. And that's so difficult to think through how they're going to experience it, but also think we have to explain, we'll have to explain this to people who were not even alive. Sort of like I was talking about with the buildings. We have to set this up for people because not everyone who experiences the 9-11 Memorial Museum will have been alive during 9-11 itself. And that's just so hard to think about, that we all bring such different things to a memorial and a museum like this. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. 
I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. The day before we went to the 9-11 Museum, Chad and I went to the Museum of Modern Art, and we spent a lot of time in this exhibit about Croatia and Slovenia and that area of the world and the architecture that was um, important there. And there were lots and lots of found household objects, and I spent a lot of time just kind of looking at those objects with curiosity and, and 
feeling myself transported to a different place in time. And so it was such a different experience to be in a place where everything looked pretty contemporary. You know, there there are mm-hmm. shoes that some of the women leaving the building wore, and they look like shoes that anyone would wear today. And there were metro cards and driver's licenses and all of these things that just look like stuff you have in your house. And it really did give me that feeling that you just described, Sarah, that this is preserved not for me. This is preserved for people who didn't live through this time. Mm-hmm. And the the television footage that they use throughout the museum, I think, contrasted immediately. So – so, for example, there is a giant projection of the North Tower's collapse, and it looks like something out of a movie, right? Mm-hmm. It, the way it just goes straight down so fast. So you see that, and then you turn around, and there are huge pieces of concrete and iron to help you remember that this is very real. It isn't from a movie. You know, that that is very real. And look at the intensity of these materials, look at how deeply impacted the strongest things we know to build with Mm -hmm. were by what happened. I just thought it was a really important way to keep you grounded in the physicality of what occurred. I mean, they literally have a steel beam that is bent into a horseshoe shape. And when you watch something that large collapse on something as small as a television screen, it's just so difficult to reflect on the size and intensity of what happened. And so walking around within the footprints of the building, seeing the steel beams, seeing that they have the Surrey Wall, which is um, an architectural part of the buildings themselves that were used to hold back because it was so close to the ports to hold back the water and to keep the water from seeping through. And just they're they're massive. They're so huge. And to have that, like she said, the physicality of the buildings themselves surrounding you and the physicality of what the collapse meant was very intense. And the other thing, the other choice they make is the white oak trees outside are symbolic, and then within, they put a white oak leaf next to the name of anyone who lost their lives on 9-11, and they tell a lot of individual stories. And here's what I noticed as I was walking through the museum itself and interacting with the white oak leaf symbols. I found myself being hyper-aware of the white oak symbols that symbolized somebody who passed away, and I would like start to read because they would put them towards the name at the heading but not the paragraph and I'd just look at the paragraph and I'd be like no white oak and I could feel my brain being like don't look up don't look don't look don't take the headline I thought that was really smart though because I think you could like lessen the impact by telling yourself well maybe that person survived you know what I mean yeah but putting the white oak on everything didn't allow you to do that It is a testament, I think, to how powerful the storytelling is throughout the museum that you still feel yourself drawn in that way. Even though you know what the inevitable conclusion is everywhere, there's still that element of feeling so connected to the people Mm -hmm. and to the city and to just, I think, to the idea of America being threatened in this way. It, It occurred to me so many times as we were walking through, especially seeing melted vehicles and crushed concrete 
that these are sites I don't see often through the luxury of where I was born. Mm -hmm. Because there are places in the world where buildings collapse because of bombs Mm -hmm. regularly. And I think just getting myself in, in the mind frame of what it must be like to live that way all the time and what it means to be in a place where that doesn't happen and then it does, it was a really profound experience for me. Another thing that I learned from the museum that I found really impactful was they talked a lot about the physicality of the buildings and how they oriented people in the space. And so when people came out or when people were walking around, particularly after the buildings collapsed and the dust went everywhere, like people did not know where they were. Like they just couldn't orient themselves in the space itself because the buildings were so important to the space and the city and the particularly the downtown area. And to think that you know, New Yorkers who are so capable of moving around a city as massive of the one they live in to have come out and how different that space must have been if people could not even tell where they were in this city that they know like the back of their hand. I was also struck by hearing some sound from a police officer who had been near the towers when the North Tower collapsed and had gone to a hospital and was being treated. And the folks at the hospital were saying, we don't mean to shove you aside, but we need to prepare because we know lots and lots of people are Mm going to be coming. And the police officer looked up and said, there's no one to come. Mm-hmm. It's all gone. There's mm-hmm. no one coming because she knew when she saw that tower collapse how unlikely survival was. Mm-hmm. And to just think about those moments when people were processing what had happened, you know, our tour guide kept saying, you can't know how you would feel, what your brain will do, how you'll make sense of things. And I hope that none of you ever have to be in a situation like this where you you just can't you can't even begin to put yourself in the shoes of the people who witnessed this thing and i think all of those reflections and voices throughout the memorial help give you a sense of how very different people from all over the world who converged here in new york city made sense of this and and it was just really touching for me and i think the the thing i walked away with more than anything else was wanting to find a way to be a peacemaker in the world mm-hmm. because you see all of this destruction and and you can't name why. And it, it just really affected me on an emotional level about sort of what are we here to do? What are we here to do with each other? So as we left the museum, Beth and I sat outside the memorial and shared our initial reflections as well as thoughts from our walking tour guide. Thanks for coming on the tour. Yeah, we just wanted to ask you why you started doing the tour. Therapeutic. Mm. You know, quite frankly. Yeah. All right. You know, I mean, I'll tell you. I mean, I avoided this place like the plague. I had no desire to come anywhere near here as long as there were ruins and everything down here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I just decided, you know, at a certain point, they kept asking me, you know, we know you were right there. Right? Yeah. Um, And uh, no, I'm not interested. I don't want to do that. I don't want to remember all that stuff. But then I came down here and and saw it. Just how fantastic this place was. And I thought, you know, I, this I can do. Yeah. Because there's a message here that's way beyond everything else that happened. 
I found it really profound to both start with one, the North Tower Memorial, to go through the museum and then to end sitting outside the South Tower Memorial. It's so profound how you can step up to the memorials and how the sound of water overtakes the sounds of the city in both small ways and big ways. You can still hear the sounds of the voices next to you and people are experiencing it in many different ways. And there's just this sort of flow of humanity standing next to this giant footprint and all the sound of this rushing water. And so you see this big hole, but you can also stand there and touch both the water itself and the names of individual people and individual lives. And it is such a profound experience that I hope every American has the chance to have. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, David McWilliams, Jared Minson, Emily Neasley, Danny Osmond, The Hattons, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Karen True, Amy Whited, Emily Holiday, Katie Steigers, Melinda Johnston, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and follow us on Instagram at Pantsuit Politics.